0: you you know you yo.
1: Welcome, Ladies and
0: gentlemen,
1: please forgive me for our tardy little start. I had some technical issues. For some reason I wasn't able to get online. Maybe it's all the snow. Anyway, we're online and I can see some of you already, so to speak, having joined us. That's great. For such Today we are going to bring the narrative to a close for such a time. Mordechai sends a message to Esther. The Jewish people are in mortal danger. You need to act. She sends him back a message. Mordechai, my hands are tied. I haven't been called to the king for a very long time the last time his wife defied him she didn't stick around for very long what was Mordechai's response he said Esther it was for such a time that Hashem has placed you in this position You must know that ultimately, Almighty God will save the Jewish people. One way or the other. But this is your moment. This is your chance to act. Forgive me. This is your chance to shine and to fulfill your mission, your purpose, and your destiny. And so Esther began a process. She involved the entirety of the local Jewish population. People prayed with their hearts, minds, and mouths, and they fasted with their bodies. And in doing so, they were able to bring about a remarkable transformation from on high. In the words that the Rebbe shared on Purim the first Purim of my life, Purim 1971. The Rebbe said at Esther was in the king's home. Mordechai was in the royal court, Beshar HaMelech, and she's Bebis HaMelech. And yet, Esther, despite her readiness to accept the mission that Mordechai had thrust upon her, did not immediately go, to speak to Achashverosh, But rather, first and foremost, she required, if you will, approbation from Mordechai for what she was about to do. In the vernacular, the Rebbe said we'd call that a psak din, a ruling. Is this the right thing to do? Should Esther, a Jewish woman, willingly submit herself to the husband who had taken her, really, by duress. But now, it's a different story. And Mordecai ratifies, he's the head of the Sanhedrin. Yes, indeed, this is what's required of you. But Esther has greater intuition and understanding. As we know, the Rebbe here, quoted the famous Gemara and Nida, Bina Yaseira Nitna Be'isha Yaser Mi b'ish. Hashem added greater understanding into the mind and heart of a woman more so than a man. And so it is Esther who understands that the right thing to do is gather everybody together, everybody in Shushan, the entire Jewish community, Vitzum and this is all about the spiritual victory. Almighty God has to be, if you will, prepared to rescind the decree. That happens al yadei hatfila la-kodesh That happens by virtue of prayer to Hashem. Not just tfilah prayer, through the neshama, but also the Rebbe said, prayer in a corporeal sense that's the way he framed the fasting the physical abstention from food drink and nourishment esther herself participates she too prays she too fasts with all of the young ladies are with her jewish and only after they are certain, and Esther knows that beneath the crust of indifference there beats a vibrant Jewish heart, and a shama that is aflame with love for Yiddishkeit, a core essence of our Jewishness that can never be extinguished. Those, faint, those sparks or embers were fanned, and after three days, It was a roaring flame. Esther knows that now she is prepared. And we've learned over the last couple of episodes about the brilliant strategies, absolute genius of Esther, and how she prepared for such a moment. And then Zero Arrow arrived. And Esther revealed for the first time who she really is. She told Ahasuerus, I am Jewish. She spoke of her lineage. Immediately, a paradigm shift overcomes the king. He begins to address her directly. We talked much about this in the previous episode. Esther, accusingly, fingers Haman. He is the culprit. This is evil incarnate. The beauty accuses the beast. And the king is enraged. And the king goes for a stroll in the park. And then he returns from the garden, the royal gardens. And he sees, he sees Haman, you'll forgive me, laying on Esther. And he has an absolute fit. It's kind of predictable. Haman wasn't a fool, but he was pushed into a very compromising position. And Ahasuerus' response, says the Gemara, is extremely damning for Haman. In this evening's episode, we are going to revisit that walk in the garden. What precisely happened there? Why is it that the Talmud devotes time and energy to the details of Ahasuerus' walk in the park when there's a lot of other things in the Megillah that our sages didn't discuss or pay any attention to? Why is it that we zero in on the specific verb of Haman falling, reading into it, falling into a very compromising position? And now, at such a moment, who actually saved the Jewish people? We're going to be introduced to a mystery man, somebody who seems to emerge from the shadows. His background, as you will discover, is quite sinister. And yet, his involvement is poetically Purim, a total turnabout, encapsulating, if you will, the essence of the miracle of salvation. We're in for a lot of exciting stuff. If you watched the previous episode, I think that you will appreciate ever more so what we're going to learn tonight, and even if you didn't, I think you can follow along eminently. I want to emphasize that we are going to revisit some of the Gemara that we spoke about previously because we now have to understand it on a deeper level so that we can appreciate the Gemara we're about to study tonight. We're not going to read many lines of Gemara, just about... uh, three or four lines of Talmud. But I won't be ashamed to tell you that I spent probably about six hours preparing these five lines. So first I'll focus on the new Gemara, Achashverosh's reaction when he sees Haman after having discovered people chopping down his trees in the royal gardens. When a sees, he exclaims, Omar, vay mi besa, vay mi bora Woe is to me from what's going on inside, and woe is to me from what's going on outside. Inside, Haman seems to be trying to seduce my wife. Outside, Haman's people seem to have made an executive decision to destroy my garden, my royal orchard, and so the king expresses himself by saying, "Hagam, lichbish es hamalka imiba bois. Do you really intend to seduce the queen under my very nose, in my home?" The Gemara doesn't discuss the deep shame that washes over Haman. His face is covered. He doesn't even have a response. And then a man steps out of the shadows. But I want to step back now. I want to step back and talk about Achashverosh's stroll in the garden. What happened precisely? And why was it that Achashverosh was so deeply angered, infuriated? Why did his wrath burn so? And again, why is it important for the Gemara to talk about this? As I've mentioned in a number of these episodes, it's important for us to understand that the sages of the Talmud did not And I want to emphasize again, did not explain every verse of the Megillah. Every one of these verses is rife with seeming inconsistencies, grammatical inconsistencies, verbiage that seems odd, details highlighted and others left out. And there's a lot to learn in the Megillah, but that's a separate study. We're learning the Gemara, we're learning the Talmud, Masechet, Megillah, the way the sages expounded the Megillah, if you will. These were probably the sermons that the rabbis of the Gemara delivered during the course of the centuries in which the Gemara was formulated. So, why does the Gemara have to tell us that Haman said, Vaymi Besa, Vaymi Bora? How is this central to the story? So let's begin by looking at something that we've already studied, but we kind of glossed over it. The Maharal of Prague, one of the greatest 17th century or late 16th century sages of the Megillah, of of the Jewish people, the chief rabbi of Prague, wrote a commentary on the Megillah. And because we say la Yehudim hayta ora, he called his commentary or chadash, the new light. So I want to begin by sharing once again, emphasizing once again, the commentary of Maharal with regard to this walk in the park, this stroll in the garden. Like, why do we focus on it? Why is it so important? The Maharal says, if we go back to the words of the Gemara prior, we zeroed in on the king rose in anger and then he went out to the garden. In the words of the Megillah, The king rose in anger from the mishte, from the feast, the party that had centered on wine. Now, the Gemara simply transcribes those words. Vahamelech kom b'chamasai and the Gemara uses an acronym, V'goymer, which is the equivalent of English etc. And then it says, Vahamelech sh'ov miginas habisan The king returned from the royal gardens or orchard. The Gemara's comment was, Makesh Shiva Lakhima. We have a juxtaposition between the way he left and the way he returned. He left in anger and he returned in anger. The Gemara asked why. And the Gemara says, because he encountered angels. Malachi HaSharis, the Talmud calls them ministering angels. They looked like people, though. He didn't know that he had encountered angels. And they were uprooting. Akri li'ilonei de Bustani. They were uprooting the trees of the orchard. He said, what are you doing? chayu. And their response to them was, Haman. Pakdinan Haman. This is a command. This is by Haman's command, sir. Came back into the house. And Haman is falling on Esther. So the Maharal notes the following. It only should have said, kom The king got up in anger, But it doesn't say that. Instead, the Gemara says, If you look into the Megillah, it says, From the party. But we know he was at a party. If these words would be uh, deleted, you'd still read the Megillah in same fashion and know exactly what was being said. So the Maharal says something quite fascinating. This stroll in the royal gardens, going to get some fresh air in the orchard, is actually not good for Esther's situation. Esther finds herself right now in an extremely precarious set of circumstances. She has essentially thrown all caution to the winds. She has just accused the king's prime minister and his best friend of being an enemy. She's staked her position. There's no turning back now. Let me remind you that it was this man, previously identified as Memuchan, who was singularly responsible for the brutal execution of the last queen. Because she displeased the king. Esther has just done something to upset the king's entire life. She's accused him of having a prime minister who is... Evil incarnate, the devil himself. Life can't just go on. Ahasuerus is now going to be forced to choose between his romantic aspirations and his political aspirations. And if you know anything about Ahasuerus, you know that romance isn't that high on his list of importance. Politics and power come first, as evidenced from the fact that he casually had his first wife executed because she got in the way of his politics and power. Now, if you're Achashverosh, and he's nobody's fool, you know that you are in a position. You've got to respond. What does any smart person know when the heat is on? When you have to respond, if you can, that is. you take a few minutes to think. It isn't like there's a media scrum surrounding the king now, thrusting a microphone in front of his face. There's nobody else at this party. Ahasuerus, the king. Esther, the queen. Haman, the prime minister. If there's anybody else present there, wait staff. So Ahasuerus naturally And he's angry. Naturally, he's going to go and try to cool off. He's going to collect his thoughts. He's got to decide how to proceed. This is not good for Esther. She's manipulating the situation. Who are we fooling? Achashverosh, as we learned many an episode back in this very Gemara, was a huge anti-Semite. He was only too happy to have Haman hatch his genocidal machinations against the Jewish people. Maharal says this is not good. What happens? Well, the Megillah says he leaves in anger, in fury, mimishtay from the party. In Maharal's words, the party's over. I'm not going back to drink. But, the truth is, up until a few moments ago, he was Yoshev ben Mishta. He was sitting at a party. Simcha. He was happy. Ava, love, reut, friendship. He put Haman in his place. He probably didn't even mind that either. Life was good. And he was a little inebriated. Va'af, im ho'ya bekas zman Even if he'll be angry, A little bit. I'm quoting from the Orchadash. He could easily kind of get over his temper. The anger would abate. And he'd figure out how to salvage the situation. They'll continue to sit at the party. Achashverosh doesn't want his anger to abate so quickly. He needs to think about this. So he leaves the party. He says, no, 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 we're not going to keep drinking. He leaves the party. And then it says, Shov me ginnatabis, and he comes back. He comes back from the orchard, but he doesn't come back. El mishte hayayin. This time the Maharal says he comes back, El Bait Mishte Hayain. The big difference. Mishteh Hayayin in English translates as the alcoholic party. Beit Mishte Hayayin translates as the venue of the alcoholic party. Just because I come to a venue doesn't mean I'm here to party. Achashverosh wasn't coming back to a party. He wasn't coming back to drink with Haman. He was coming back to the location, the place where there was, past tense, a party. Why? Why wasn't he coming back to the party? Maharal says something astounding. This, too, was a tremendous miracle. You see, had achashverosh kind of mollified and gotten over his anger making himself feel better then he could have come back and they could have started discussing negotiating could have been very tense there's no guarantee that Esther is going to win this contest but miracle upon miracle Achashverosh goes out where naturally he should have cooled off and instead of cooling off he comes back even angrier His stroll in the orchard exacerbated the situation rather than making it better. This the Gemara has to talk about. Because in our previous episode that I illustrated, and I'm going to zero in and highlight this again and again tonight, the point of our sages was to demonstrate the miraculous elements of a story that seems entirely natural to point out to you and to me many little miracles because that is really the message of Purim that Hashem Almighty God is arranging everything in the details and that the miracle of Purim can only be appreciated if we take the time to look at every tiny detail not just what happened when it happened how it happened because the quote, end quote, coincidences, can only be miraculous. So here, naturally, Achashverosh should cool off. Instead, he comes back angrier. The Megillah does not tell the story. The Megillah only matter-of-factly tells us he went out to the garden and came back from the garden. So what happened? By the way, I want to remind all of you that if you have... Uh, questions, you're welcome to post them on the live chat on YouTube. Um, I'm not looking at the screen on Facebook, but if you go to YouTube and you post your questions in the live chat with Hashem's help, I will do my best to try and respond. So if you look in the actual Megillah, it says he went out into the garden and... He came back from the garden. In the meantime, Haman turned his attention to Esther, realizing that the king was not particularly, shall we say, entertained, and he began to plead with her. The king comes back, but the Megillah doesn't tell us what happened in between. And of course, the obvious question is, so what happened? What happened? What happened before? What happened after? Why are we even hearing about this stroll? It would seem that this is not a good part of the story. This doesn't lend itself to the miracle. Ah, but it does. And our sages were bothered by precisely this. Why did the Megillah detail, insert this detail of Ahasuerus walking out and coming in? The answer is because actually it was the greatest of miracles. This is what sealed the fate of Haman. This is what made such a moment so powerful. Had Achashverosh been there, Haman could never have begun to ingratiate himself before Esther. And he certainly never would have fallen onto her. He would have spoken to the king. It was only because the king went out that Haman could be thrust into this compromising position. But the king could have come back, well, a lot less angry. Instead, he came back infuriated. Why? Ah, here the Gemara feels a need to fill in. That's the point, says the Mahalal. What bothered the sages is Certainly, Achashverosh's decision to make an interruption, to go and get some fresh air, it was in order to abate the anger he was feeling. Nobody makes smart decisions in anger. Yeser would have been, it would seem, much better if he wouldn't have gone. So why did he go? Hashem is arranging things. Ah says the Maharal zeh. Tsarh El Haguullah. You would think this is not for the reason of the redemption. Aderabbah! You would think this is going to be Haman's saving grace. Calm himself down. Therefore they came back and said, wrong. He came back. However, not only was he not calmer, not only did his anger not abate, but in fact, quite the contrary, he became even angrier because he saw these malachim, who he didn't know were angels. People who were chopping down his cherry trees. And he didn't think that was funny now it gets even more interesting so if we are to understand all of this another little detail kind of falls into place in the previous episode i shared with you that the maharal had told us explained to us why it was that esther chose to point a finger not at Haman, but at Bad idea. We had to have angelic interference to save her. Ah, well the thing is this. Esther's concern was a verse in the book of Tehillim. Psalm 101, verse 7. The verse concludes with, Dover shkorim lo yikoin. That the one who speaks words of falsehood will not be able to establish Hashem's presence. Midivri sheker lo tavogu from words that are deceitful, no, shall we say, redemption can come about. Why not? We mentioned this previously, but I want to now share with you something quite fascinating. A statement which is made in the Gemara in the Sota. The Gemara B'Seachetzot, at the end of the 7th chapter, page 42b, tells us the following. The great Rabbi Yirmiah taught of the kinds of people who would repel the presence of Hashem. Who might that be? So, Rabbi Yirmiya said I heard in the name of Rabbi Abba Arba Kitois There are four people Ein Mikablis Pnei They don't have the privilege of quote receiving the countenance of the Divine Presence Who are these people? kat leitzim, people who are empty-headed, vacuous, just finding a way to mock or laugh at somebody else. kat chanifim, people who engage in flattery, dishonest in their relationships. Kat shakorim, people who lie and use deceit. And finally, kat mesapir loshin people who speak words of slander. That's Rabbi Yirmiyah taught. The Gemara goes through the idea of leitzim. There's a verse for that. Chanifim, people who engage in disingenuous flattery. There's a verse for that. Kachakorim, people, groups of people who engage in deceit, liars. For it is written, and here the quote comes from Psalm 101 De La La The person who speaks words of falsity, lies, will not be established before Hashem. So the Yadrama very important commentary on the Gemara, tells us in in his commentary on Mesechet Sanhedrin that you must know that these might be people who are, broadly speaking, deserving of the presence of the Shechina. Otherwise, the teaching doesn't seem to make sense. If you have people who are empty, lying, cheating, flattering, and uh, gossip-monging, why would they have the presence of Hashem? So the Yad says we are talking about people sheyesh Torah people who possess Torah knowledge and good deeds. Well, if so, why wouldn't they have Makablum pnei The answer is because these kinds of activities become interference. The famous Hasidic master, the Tzaddik of Lublin, in a sefer called Tzidkas HaTzadik, says that an example of this is that people who engage in this kind of behavior don't succeed in focusing in prayer. They are the victims of interference. You know, like when you're trying to broadcast and you get some jamming it's like jamming. So you shouldn't be able to focus or connect. The Yosef says that although Kabbalah's P'nei is a big deal. It's in the purview of the supremely righteous. But the Yosef says on some level this could apply to anybody. If you're a liar you won't have sudden feelings of inspiration. The kind of feelings that everybody sometimes gets or could or should be able to experience. Moments of inspiration. Moments of moral clarity. Moments of passion and fervor for things good and holy. H. Yisif says everybody can experience this. Euphemistically, it's called Kabbalah's Pnei So lies get in the way of that. Okay, what's the issue? The issue is this. Again, in the previous episode, I shared with you the words of the great Rabbi Yonason of Abishitz, the author of many svarim, including the Yaras Devash, which is a book of his sermons. And in the Yaras Dvash, at the very end of the first section, the seventeenth homily, the Yaras Dvash speaks about why it was that Esther invited Achashverosh to her home instead of making the party in, I don't know, the royal ballroom or Achashverosh's private dining room. So, besides the obvious of wanting the quote home advantage which is not really going to help much there were no fans in the stands esther herself saw that entering into the foyer the antechamber of the throne room that the shchina had left her we talked about this in great length many an episode ago in this very gemara because there were idols All parts of Ahasuerus' palace were filled with idolatrous iconography. But Esther's house was clean. Nebuchadnezzar says that the miracle was that Haman didn't get a chance to wash and change his clothing because his clothing was filled with icons. He would have people bow to him because he became a representation of that alien deity. He was wearing the idol, so to speak. The first time, Esther couldn't make her move because Haman was sitting there with the idols. And she doesn't know how this is going to work. The Ars Dvash says something really quite fascinating. He says, Esther was hoping for a miracle. You must know there is nothing natural about this story. The same man who killed his wife on advice of his prime minister is now about to have his prime minister executed upon the accusation from his wife. It's the exact mirror image, opposite of how the Megillah begins. So the Ayers Dvash says, that when you need a miracle, you need ha'aras hashchina. And he says, "Yoiser she ha'aras yesh." The more proverbial radiance of the shchina, presence, manifestation of the, of the divine, no it'll make it easier for a miracle to happen. Ki hu amaf because God, who can do anything. However, there's one thing that, if you will, blocks the presence of Hashem, and that's idolatry. And he says that the more you have something blocking the Shekhinah kasha mitziyas hanes, it's harder for a miracle to unfold. Like we see, he giela slomim. She came to the antechamber, which was filled with idols. The presence of Hashem went away. We see, Yarizdvash says, with Moshe Rabbeinu that he couldn't pray. That he said, "When I leave the city, I can pray, but I can't pray here. It's full of idols." So here, the Shechinah is with Esther. However. Est choshevah, est ech avakesh, menachashveres halatzol siyserol. How am I going to make this request? Shahu nes Kodol. It's a big miracle. And then there's idols. Loze tzarich haoras shchina. I need divine presence. I need ruach hakodesh. I need the Holy Spirit. I need Hashem to be with me. And that's why he s'chak marshiyav haMelech lebeisa. That's why she wanted Haman and Achashverosh to come to her home. And Haman had his clothes. Neged leboy, right at his heart. No idols. Well, at least they were until Haman came. Velozeh, that's why Hashem arranges that the second time around Haman doesn't get to change his clothing and he comes sans the idolatrous raiments. Now this creates a tremendous question my friends. The question is if lying gets in the way of the presence of Hashem and that will confound the possibility of a miracle unfolding then how is it that the entire redemption of the Jewish people came about through a lie. It's a lie. The Gemara says that Ahasuerus went into the garden and and he saw people chopping down trees. He said, what are you doing? They said, Haman told us to. That's a lie. It's an outright lie. This is a problem. The problem was he went out into the, 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 the orchard. This is going to be a problem because it's going to, so to speak, diminish his anger Hashem makes sure it should arouse his anger which will save the Jewish people but that means the Geula came through deception through a lie it doesn't seem to work so the Mepharshim actually talk about this they, they discuss this at length how is it possible that we would have lies that become the key to something good like that so the Vilna Gaon's taina, he says, "Listen, Haman lied about the Jews. He got you fight fire with fire. He lied. They lied about him. Still a lie, though. And therefore, the Ben Yehiada says two incredible things. The first thing he says is that they never said Haman told us to do it." It doesn't say the angels lied. There wasn't an act of a lie. Achashverosh interpreted it as such. There was a tumult. Achashverosh says, What in heaven is going on here? The people said, Haman! Haman! They just screamed Haman as they kept chopping. They didn't say what Haman did. They just said Haman. This is like the white lie of Yaakov. Ani! Who's there, Yitzchak? In his blind state said. He said, I, Esav, Bechorecha, Esav is your firstborn. And this, we learned, one is permitted to do when it comes to keeping the peace. So it wasn't an outright lie. Ahasuerus interpreted as such. And then, the Ben Yehiyadah says something astounding, astounding. And what's even more astounding is that when you sew this all together, you kind of weave it all, this amazing tapestry is going to emerge. Listen to this. He says, and I'm quoting, he says, you have to know this entire story Yarak Bidimyoinai. It was his imagination. Kidimion hachaloim. Like a dream. Lohey Bamas Malakim Shadibruimai. There was no angels. The whole thing never happened. Elakiv and Shohuhir call Hasman. But since he was thinking about Hamun the whole time, he imagined an event. He imagined that there was people chopping down a tree. What do you mean he imagined? He didn't go to sleep. Even when he had a dream, we said that was kind of like a miracle. Now he had a dream, a nightmare. The nightmare was Haman was coming to kill him. And then then Haman was there. But he wasn't sleeping now. He was going for a walk. So years ago, I I did some research on flashbacks. And I went back and looked again. And here's the interesting thing that I found. You'll see where I'm going in a minute. So according to Rabbi Google, and I I went for various sites, a flashback is a vivid experience in which you relive some aspects of a traumatic event or feel as if it's happening right now. Apparently, it can be like watching a video of what happened. A flashback is when memories of a past trauma feel as if they're taking place in the current moment. During a flashback, it's actually difficult for people to connect with reality. They may, God forbid, feel like the perpetrator of a crime or abuse is actually there. They can be triggered by ordinary experiences that are connected with the senses. It's like a powerful, sudden, powerful re-experiencing. And and it's, it's, it's so intense that it feels like it's happening in real time. And then I found this. Quote, Flashbacks are like walking or waking nightmares. They are intense, repeated episodes in which a person relives a traumatic experience while being fully awake. The Ben Yahyada says a khalom, a dream. Living nearly two centuries ago, he's talking about modern information, and he uses the same language. He says, flashbacks are so powerful that they're more than a nightmare because, pardon me, they're more like a nightmare than a memory, a nightmare, a dream, a nightmare, because the sufferer cannot distinguish between the flashback and reality. Flashbacks are vivid sensory experiences. Sometimes people who have these experiences actually believe that they're there. They actually believe they witnessed something. So you're telling me flashbacks? That's that's reliving something that happened. Well, guess what? There's also something much rarer called a flash forward. A flash forward is a quote Mental image of a simulated future event, one that has not yet occurred. For example, someone with depression may experience a flash forward of being rejected by their peers or unable to complete a work assignment. So people can actually convince themselves something happened, even though it didn't happen. Why is this so important? I'd like to suggest to you that this is so important, not only because we're trying to avoid lies. The Ben Yodha did that the first time around. But rather, because if we are to say that it happened in this fashion, something far more important, so to speak, comes our way. When it comes to miracles, do we just expect Hashem to do extraordinary things, suspending reality as we know it? I mean, typically that is the way people describe a miracle. But I discovered that even miracle miracles don't necessarily represent a full suspension Of reality. Oftentimes, a miracle will appear as natural as possible, and it will utilize as much of nature as possible to serve as a vehicle. Those who are watching yesterday's episode will be familiar with this. Um, I'm just going to respond to some quick questions over here. Uh, Janet is asking, didn't Avraham lie when he said Sarah was his sister? Um, As you correctly wrote, Janet, technically she was, number one. Number two, what happened is Avraham Avinu utilized methodology to save his life. On the contrary, he wasn't relying on a miracle. He actually had a very cogent strategy. He didn't think he needed a miracle at all the miracles they came later when esther was abducted here esther knows she needs a miracle according to the maharal and rachash that's why she pointed her finger at Achashverosh. maharal says how could esther just blame Achashverosh for everything and make be- uh, Haman for everything and make believe Achashverosh wasn't involved it's just a lie He was involved. Big time. So in yesterday's yesterday's, uh, class on the Shara Bitochen, which I think is the 81st episode of the Live With Certainty series, I shared with you a fascinating commentary of the Maharal of Prague in his book, Gur Aryeh, on the commentary of Rashi in the book of Exodus. And because... Many of you may have watched or seen the class yesterday, but many of you perhaps didn't. And more importantly, this class will live on and be available for people afterwards. I'm going to take the time to repeat some of what we learned only yesterday. And if it's very familiar, you'll forgive me. So in Exodus 18, we hear a reference of God saving Moses' life. Moses says, I was saved from the sword of the Pharaoh. Rashi's comment is, indeed, his neck turned to marble. Maharal says, take a look at what I wrote in Exodus 4, verse 11. There, Moses doesn't want the job. He finally argues, I'm not capable. You told me to speak. I'm not able to articulate myself. God is not pleased. And in verse 11, he says to Moshe, Who gave a person a mouth? Rashi tells us, this is not just a broad, euphemistic idea that God empowers people. This is a very direct message to Moses himself. Who taught you to speak? How were you able to mount a cogent defense in front of the court? You know, I generally don't have a problem articulating things. And I have to tell you, I once had to stand in a, in a court to defend the person who I thought was innocent, and I can only do the best of my ability. I can only function as per the information I have. The truth is that he was quite a very bad person, that's the truth, and I didn't know this. But I could only be there to tell the judge what I had personally observed. I gotta tell you, it's daunting, it's intimidating when you're standing in a criminal court in front of a a high-level judge in the court, and you're asked to affirm, it's intimidating. I'm not so sure I was as articulate as I am in a good day. And here, Moses is brought to a criminal court not to defend somebody else. He has to defend himself. He's in the docket for murder. The consequence isn't a jail sentence it's execution. And Moses mounts a defense. Suddenly, the inarticulate Moses is able to speak. Hashem says, Me sampeh, who gave you a mouth to speak? or who makes those typically articulate tongue-tied? Rashi says, that's talking about the pharaoh. He had no problem articulating himself and suddenly he couldn't get the words out. And he didn't give the command with force as he was expected to. And that created a weakening of the situation. And there was a domino effect. And in the end, Moses is saved. Indeed, his neck turned to marble. But there was a lot of other things that seemed... Like happenstance before. So the Maharal says an incredible thing. He asked the question what's going on here? If God made a miracle, then well, God made a miracle. Why did Moses suddenly have to get a, a wind, a feeling of confidence and inspiration to be able to articulate himself? Why did the Pharaoh suddenly find himself dumb and tongue tied, inarticulate? Says Maharal of Prague, "Ve'yire It seems very clear that they're all necessary. Why? Ki kol hanisim because this is the mechanism of a miracle. God makes miracles seem as naturally as possible. Kol ma Whatever can happen by virtue of nature will happen naturally. Why? (laughs) Because God does not suspend the laws of physics unnecessarily. (laughs) Whatever God can do to diminish the shattering of the laws of nature... God will do. Had he not enabled Moses to speak, which is not a raging miracle, had he not enabled a Pharaoh to become tongue-tied, again, not an obvious miracle. There are examples of inarticulate people who suddenly get a wind and they become articulate. It happens. Hardly miraculous. There are times that People get emotional, overwhelmed, and they can't articulate themselves. Yes, Hashem is calling the shots. A miracle? So it's not Shinu Hateva, that's not a change of nature. What I just read about flashbacks, or even flash forwards, is not a miracle. Achashverosh had been thinking for the last 24 hours. Haman is trying to depose me. He's trying to take my place. Now, his wife, whom he kind of loved, certainly was very attracted to her, she said, He's a devil. He's trying to destroy my life and your life. He's infuriated. He goes outside. He had a flash forward experience. In other words, this is what I realized. I realized that the Ben Yehiyya is telling us who says that there was actually angels. It says he saw angels. He saw people. Does that mean that God literally created a physical incarnation of angels who physically chopped a tree down? Maybe not. God gave Achashverosh a powerful flash-forward, not post, but pre-traumatic stress experience. He had a disorder. It wasn't post, it was pre. And in his flash-forward, he sees angels. I mean people. It's simulated. It's in his mind. There was no lie. It was all in his imagination. What did it do? It made him even angrier. And this is the miracle. Achashverosh just was put on the spot by Esther. Esther drops, she, 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 so to speak, she dropped the gauntlet. She said, I am Jewish. This is my lineage. He wants to kill me. He wants to depose you. There's no turning back now. Achashverosh storms out. We can only imagine what Esther might have been thinking. She must have been praying to Hashem. What happens? What happens is that Achashverosh comes back even angrier. So the Gemara fills us in. And the Ben-Yah Yod is telling us who says it was actually angels. Who says that whole story happened? Maybe it was people. Maybe he saw people chopping down a tree. Maybe the gardeners ordered a tree being chopped down. In his mind, maybe he said, what's going on here? Maybe maybe the whole thing never happened. It seemed natural. But in truth, it was an extraordinary miracle. It's so interesting to note that in the next thing, he comes back into the house and he's fuming. Why? Because Haman is lying on his wife. But you look in the words of the Gemara. The Gemara says. It says. Haman no fell. He's falling. alhamita. doesn't say. Nofal. It should have said he fell. What is he insane? Why would he lay in her bed? So the Mephashim discussed this. In the Sefer called. Um, he says. Haman didn't want to lie in the bed. He wanted to lie on the floor. He was going to grovel on the floor. And then something pushed him onto the bed. Balimudim was a tremendous preacher and wrote a, a beautiful commentary about two and a half, a little more than two centuries ago. In Vilna. He says an amazing thing. He says, Haman meant to sit on the bed next to Esther. And suddenly he fell right onto her. And then he felt entirely overwhelmed and he tried to get up and he didn't know what happened. Suddenly he felt himself propelled forward again. What do you think? Angels came with wings instead of flapping their wings and pushing him around. Sometimes a person is propelled in one direction or the other. He doesn't even know how his life was saved or how he was put in a position. I know a person who was about to run into the street and felt a strong wind and suddenly turned around and a car flashed by in front of his very eyes. A split second later, he probably would have died. Is that an angel? Maybe. You're going to tell me, Rabbi, the Gemara says angels. My dear friends, indeed the Gemara says angels. But when the Gemara says angels, it doesn't necessarily mean angels. Gasp. I'm not telling that. The Rishonim said it. Listen to this Genesis 37. Chumash Bereishas, Pedeklam Zion, Parshas Va Yosef at the famous Joseph, has been sent on a mission by his father to find his brothers. But they're not where he expected to find them. And so he's wandering. He's looking for his brothers. They're supposed to be in Shechem, but he came to Shechem and they're not there. Posok, Tezva, verse 15 says, A man finds him. He's wandering about the field the man asks him. He says, I, I beg your pardon, sir. What are you looking for? Yosef says, I'm looking for my brother, sir. He ali, to know something. him, where are they pasturing the sheep? the man says, "Nosum," they have left. I heard them saying, Nil chadoy they'll go to Dotan. Who is this mystery man? Shows up in verse 15. The man finds him. Yosef has a conversation with him. In verse 17, the man responds, ha'ish. Rashi says, Zegavriel. This is the archangel Gabriel. Gabriel, by the way, is the angel judgment severity this was a test because between the lines he told Yosef that your brothers are plotting against you you have a mitzvah a shlichut a message a mission from your father will you have the courage to continue to soldier on in the Hadar Zikane which is a collection of tosafist commentary it actually identifies it as Malach Rafoil. The Malach would come to save or heal Yosef, but Rashi insists it's Gavriel. And he says, "How do you know that?" He says, "Because in the book of Daniel it says Veho ish Gavriel." So the Ibn Ezra fa- fascinatingly says, "Al Derech If you want to talk like simple meaning, it says angel. He says, "Yeah, it says angel." Al Derech It means Echad Me'Uvri a traveler. But it says angel. Yes, it says angel. Rabbi Avram, the son of the Rambam, wrote, the commentary that he had heard, the interpretation, the explanation that this is an angel, like an angel that God sent. He says, in order for that angel to go and ask Yosef. He says, It's an appropriate uh, commentary. Sorry. He says the, the, that, that there was a person... Who was ke'en malach, like an angel, like an angel, because he was propelled from a higher force by Hashem to ask Yosef, "What are you looking for?" and to show him, "Oh, your brothers, I know where they are." That's pirush nachon, he says. So it's not just the pirush of the Yevanezer happens to be a person walking, but there was yes, a person who was a guided missile. Avla malach mamash. The interpretation that this is literally an angel, the this would be an act. Of prophecy seeing things with, with, with higher, more refined senses, that's a homily it's not pshat now, Rashi argues that it is pshat and why does Rashi argue that it is pshat? so the commentaries on Rashi say a number of things so f- firstly they say it says a person found him a passerby doesn't just go find somebody he would start the conversation they wouldn't Start the conversation with him. That doesn't make any sense. And how would he know? And how would he know what they were talking about, what they were thinking about? So if you talk about it on a literal level, the Ebenezer is right. The Ebenezer says, it's a person. He says, it says, this is what it is. The Rashi says, syntaxually, it doesn't really make sense. It's got to be something more. So they use the term angel loosely. Rabbi son of Rambam, uses the term angel. And he says, it was an angel. What does it mean, an angel? An angel means a person. A person who was sent by God. This is not a class on Parshish Vayeshev, now, And I'm not going to discuss the details. The point, my point is simple. When we talk about angels, especially we're learning Gemara, it's not scripture. It doesn't always have to mean the Hollywood imagery of angels. There was a force Something propelled, something pushed, something, something otherworldly was going on. Why would Haman lay on top of Esther? It's got to be insane. He didn't know what he was doing. He he didn't realize. He was disoriented, overwhelmed. So his life flashed before his eyes. He he meant to to sit on the bed and plead with her because they would lay on like couches. The next thing you know, he's laying on her. And he tried to get up right away because he knew this was not a good position to be in. And all of a sudden he felt himself like collapsing and falling on her again. And then he tries to get up and again he's falling. No he fell. He keeps falling on her. And Nachasverosh walks in and he sees this. So it's all natural. But these natural occurrences are all miraculous. The Gemara is pointing out to us. So every single nuance, every detail here is a miracle. And that's where we started today. So, what's Achashverosh's response to all of this? He says, "Gevald, vaymi besa, vaymi bara. Outside, inside, wherever I look, I got troubles." The Maharsha says, "Vaymi besa, bara" means like this. How do we know this? How do we know he said that? So the marshal says, he said, "Hagam, Lichbesh, Esamalka, imi baboyas." this too. you want to seduce my queen under my very nose, in my house? It's not his house, it's Esther's house. So it's all in the royal compound. He says, "Hagam." the hagami says, "It seems to be there's something else. this, this, too." Aha, Marsha says that's exactly the point. Kvar Oid Vacheres. It indicates this is coming on the hills of Bachutz, what he saw outside. The Akkadilon in the uprooted tree. And then he said, in the words of the Megillah, it says, Vayomer Hamelach." So Vayomer says to Marsha, the Gemara is reading as Va'yomar. Vai, vai, like, like Oyve. Whoa! Yikes! Vaimer Yomer, Vai Omar He didn't say it. He screamed it. And we see that the number of he brings cross references for this. So, like a picture starting to emerge over here. And we see how all of this is actually extraordinarily miraculous. It's like amazing stuff going on over here. The Yaivetz. And the Sivzich say that when he said Babayis in the house, Babayis, he could have said, Hagam Lichpesh hamalka. You want to seduce the queen? When he said Babayis, he was indicating inside as per outside. Juxtaposing inside and outside. And I think the beauty of what we have learned tonight is that all of this is so miraculous naturally. Naturally. That's the point of the Megillah. The heavens didn't open, the seed didn't split, fire and rain or ice didn't fall from the heavens. Wild animals didn't appear out of nowhere. It's all natural, ever so miraculously. That's the Purim story. And Just at this moment, the perfect storm. Esther never could have imagined things going so well. She actually didn't know how this was going to play itself out. She knew she would need a miracle. But she did everything she possibly could. Including, as we learned in the previous episode, possibly risking her own life so that Ferish would kill her and in this way she would save the Jewish people. She does her very best, marshalling every ounce of her genius and cunning. And Hashem arranges and fills in the gaps. That's the way it's supposed to be. And so, the Gemara now continues and says, Suddenly, when all of this is going on, a man steps out of the shadows. Ahashverosh is screaming, Whoa, Vai mi beysa, vay mi boro. Did you want to seduce the queen in my own house? All of a sudden, vay Chavoina. Chavona speaks up. Who is Charvona? Charvona is Echod min He's one of the ministers, a royal minister, a chamberlain. Who's chamberlain? Doesn't say. The Gemara introduces this with the words Va'yomer Charvona Vigomer. Who's Charvona? Where'd he come from? How did this this work? Esther arranged everything. There she is laying on her couch, being accosted by Haman, and suddenly, out of nowhere, a new actor shows up on the stage. He was a wicked man. He's Haman's homeboy. He was part of the plan. What happened? Ah, he saw that Haman's machinations were coming to naught. And immediately, Miyad Barachi fled. A turncoat. I know, and this is the meaning of what's written. And here, the Gemara quotes a fascinating verse from the book of Job. And this is the meaning of the verse. Kivan sharah, that at in the Muhammad is not successful. He ran. Rashi says, that when he saw, he wasn't successful. What does this mean? I'll get to Rashi in a minute. Let's, let's take a look at the verse, inside the book of Job. So it says, this is the meaning of what's written. Job chapter 27, verse 22. That the verse says, Vayashlech alav, He hurled upon him, God in other words, hurled upon him, the angst, the anger, the fury, and there was no mercy. from his hand. Yivrach. And then flight. They ran away. Who ran away? Rashi says, Lecholov, Hamashlich of Lavra, the one who is bringing evil upon the wicked, God. And there's no mercy. Barayach Yivrach, says Rashi, In Iov, Ben Atzosei Shehoya Misaioi, his own partner in crime, the one who is helping him. Yivrach Me'azor Yodai, he flees from helping him. Beshat Kishlono when he sees his friend stumble. He's a fair-weather friend. That's what Chavona did. So I ask myself the question, why does the Gemara have to bring this verse from Job? Why doesn't the Gemara just tell us, if that's what Chavona did, that's what Chavona did? And the answer, I think, is to tell us that it wasn't such a miracle. This is the way it is for wicked people. Wicked people, they don't have real friends. They're all fair-weather friends. They can plot together with them as long as things are working out. The moment the ship is sinking, they jump ship. There's no loyalty. This is politics. Ugly politics. In other words, by quoting this verse, we're hearing that this is not a unique event to Harvona or hamon. This is natural. Naturally, charvona, would jump ship. Of course he would abandon his friend. Why would he stay with him? The Marsha tells us something quite interesting with regard to this business of him, so to speak, jumping ship. Marsha says, He was one of the seven royal chamberlains of the king. Hamisharim, who was serving before the king. And what tips us off that Harvona was Haman's man? Says the Marsha, here the Megillah uses the words, "VaYomer Harvona, Echad Min one of the Sarisim. It doesn't say one of the Sarisim of the king just says and what so marsha says when it says before the king so this is pointing a finger to tell us that it's not the word hamisharsim that is serving or ministering he's just one of the chamberlains one of the royal chamberlains to tell us here that actually he's more than just here on a royal account, he stepped out of the shadows because he was Haman's man. He was shadowing Haman, actually. He wanted to find out where this is going. He's one of the good friends. How do we know this? He said, what did Hav- Havona say? He says, there's that gallows built by Haman for Mordechai. Who spoke well of the king. And it's in Haman's house, and it's, it's 50 Amot high. So the Marshal says, Tell me, how did he know how tall it was? But just looking at it, he couldn't know if it was 75 feet tall. How did he know? So he was there with him the night before they built the gallows together. He had the specs. And this was perfectly natural. Bad man with bad people. He realized that Haman's luck has run out. He immediately jumped ship. He was afraid. What was he afraid of? If Haman is now going to be punished for building a gallows for the man who saved the king's life, for all he knows, there'll be a purge. And everybody around Haman, He's going to be swept down the same drain. Chavonah's got to protect himself. How's he going to do that? By switching sides. He's Mordechai's friend now. He says, yeah, and Homan built that gallows. The moment he sees the king screaming vayi, he realizes the jig is up. Outside, inside, the stroll in the orchard didn't make him feel any better. Chavonah thought, I better save my skin. And so, naturally, he becomes the one to say this to Achashverosh. What does Achashverosh say? As soon as that happens, as the Megillah tells us, by Yomar Hamelot, the king, said, Tuluhu Allah, then hang him. And here it gets really interesting. It gets really interesting because. It turns out that it wasn't Esther who saved the Jewish people in the end. It was Chavona. Now, to be sure, not everybody agrees that Chavona was a bad man. Some maintain that Chavona was actually a good guy. In fact, in the Medrash Al-Kot it says, and I quote, there are those who maintain, Ba'osa-sha Elio is a This was Elijah the prophet. Major miracle. la Harvona. He looked like charvona. Yet, my friends, the Gemara doesn't say that. Why is the Gemara so insistent that the charvona is a bad man? And that this is just the fulfillment of a verse? Because once again, this makes it all so natural. That's the point of our sages' expositions. Back to Maharal in the Or he says something amazing. He asks this question. He says, "He says according to the Jerusalem Talmud, Harvona is a But he says, what, "What forced the Jerusalem Talmud to say that?" He said, "I'll tell you what forced them. Because in this case, in the end, who saves the Jewish people? Charvona. <laughs> 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 Charvona. <laughs> it should be Mordechai Rester. Why did Hashem ordain it to be that way?" He says, even if you're going to say that Harvona was co-opted by Elijah, at the end of the day, he was still the fall guy. Havona used his meat suit, if you will. He's his used his body. He just possessed him, got him to say it. But the Maharal says, we say Havona Zahulatov, He says, in the end, the truth is that Havona hated Mordechai. He hated Mordechai. And here we see what is written: the euphemism "Nafal Shor, Hevi Shochten." The ox stumbles; they call the slaughterers. Chavona was like a—he was a turncoat, like a jackal. He smelled blood, and suddenly he became Mordechai's friend. And he says, is this the only thing Haman did? You think he's just seducing your wife? You think he's just chopping down your, your trees? <laughs> he also is going to hang the man who saved your life. He was part of the plot last time. Who in Big Sam He was with those guys. So the Maharal asks, the Medrash is bothered by this. Like, at the end of the day, how is it that the redemption comes with such a man? The Maharal says an amazing thing. It's all part of the story. He says, safe, safe. What prompted Havona? He went to save his skin. Why? Safe, safe, b'shvil shahari yorim and Esther." He was afraid of Esther. He was just a fall guy. Man of the hour. He didn't really do anything. He doesn't get much credit. Hakoil Mitzad Esther. Esther, in the end, is the one who reaps this victory. Mitzad <laughs> Atzmai? On his own? He never would have done it. It's interesting to point out that according to the Medrash Aliyahu, Harvona did do tshuva. In fact, he even converted and joined the Jewish people. Earlier, his name is spelled Harvona with an aleph, and now it becomes a hay. And the letter hay is a special connection to Avram Avinu, as the Mepharshim comment in Pirkei Avot at the end of the fifth chapter, with the commentaries known as Ben-Hey-Hey and Bag-Bag. Ben-Hey-Hey is hay is Avram and Sarah. And Avraham Not Avram gets a hay. And Sarah has the Yud turned into a hay. And Bag is Beis Gimel, which is five. So, maybe in the end he did tshuva. And he wasn't such a bad guy. We remember him because he delivered the goods. But Esther, she's the heroine. She made this all happen. It's fascinating to note that the Maharsha, He speaks about, he speaks about um, who Kharvona was and what Kharvona what did. The Masha maintains that ultimately, the fact that Kharvona makes a move at this point is only because he's trying to save his own skin. It was convenient for him. Only because he was afraid of Esther. And now the Gemara concludes. This is really the end of the narrative. The Gemara is going to go off and talk about other things after this. The Gemara says, so what happens? They hang Haman. Haman is hung. That's verse 10. This is the end of the 7th chapter. And then what happens? The king's... Wrath abates. So the Gemara says the king's wrath abates. What is this? By the way, I missed that. The Rashi's. Let me just include them. God hurls troubles, misfortune on the wicked. No mercy for the truly wicked. And what happens then? His friends. Not just Chavona. Naturally. They don't want to sink with him. So they run. It's interesting. The Maharam Shif comments. He says, where'd they run? He says, running is a euphemism. It doesn't mean that he actually ran. Eina says Maharam Schiff, Shebarach Mamash. Barach Meyada Puronius. He fled from trouble. Mahamas Amirase, when saying this, he would be able to flee. In other words, remove himself from suspicion. So when Ahasuerus does an investigation, and he says, who put up those gallows? Chavona says, I told you about the gallows. I was always there for you, Your Royal Highness. I was just a spy. I was making sure I always had your back. <laughs> That's the game he was going to play. So euphemistically, he fled from the, the, the crime scene. Marab Shif says it's a euphemism. So the the wrath abates. Gemara says, Chamas Hamelach Shachocha, Shtei is Halal There's two abatings. There's a double abating. Why is there a double abating? What's, what's the double abating that, that that we refer to here? Let's go back to Marsha. So Marsha says, the ha We see whenever we talk about the word abate in the Scripture, we're always using one chav. For example. The waters abated. This is the raging floodwaters of Noah. Or in the Megillus Esther itself, where Vashti is executed and it says when the king's wrath abated. One chaf. And now all of a sudden it's two chafs. So the Gemara sees that there's some kind of message that's being conveyed to us what could that be the gemara therefore says Ahas shal shal olam. one is the angst the fury of the king god that's Hamas Ha-Melech, the anger of the king of all kings one is the anger of shverosh. Masha says something very curious he says, what does it mean, God's anger abated? He says, well, he was angry at the Jewish people. She <inaudible> They had prostrated themselves before the idol. He says, Ahasuerus was angry because, because he was, Haman was going to destroy all the Jews. And I'm looking at this Masha and I'm like, I don't understand. If God was angry at the Jewish people for what they did, as I shared with you in the beginning of the class, that anger had already abated. Esther couldn't have done what she did unless Hashem's anger had already been removed. So why would the hanging of Haman cause the abating of Hashem's anger? Achashverosh was part of Haman's plan. He plotted genocide together with him. What do you mean his anger abated? Why did the hanging of Haman make his anger abate? I couldn't understand this. Like asking myself, what is is the Masha saying? So it's very interesting to note that there is a verse that is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 14. Chubrash dvarim yud dalad. The Torah speaks there about a city of idolatry. A pagan city that develops in the land of Israel. And the Torah says that should such a thing happen. It's called a irhanidachat, a rebellious city against God that worships idols. The Jewish people have to go to war against their own brethren. They have to destroy the city. Verse 16 says, I'll liberate the city. You wipe out its inhabitants. All of the spoils should be brought into the center of the city and everything should be incinerated. All of it should be burnt like a crisp. All of it has to be destroyed. V-a-is-a-tel. This should become a ruin never to be rebuilt incidentally the Gemara says this never happened See, theoretical mitzvah should such a circumstance present itself this is what you should do in verse 18 the Torah says make sure you don't get sticky hands none of this should come into your possession so that God will turn his wrath away. So, why would God's wrath flare because people took some spoils? So, Rashi says, as long as there is idolatry in the world, Idolatry provokes God's wrath, raging wrath. But we're not talking about idolatry. Talking about residuals. In some of the earliest prints of Rashi, there is another version. Laman Yoshuv Hashem refers not to verse 18, but it takes us back to verse 16. Hake Sake. And Hashem now says, when you will destroy the idolatrous city, then the wrath will dissipate. The Mefarshim and Rashi explain, it's not about taking the residuals, it's not about benefiting from the wealth or affluence or the money. It's about destroying idolatry. Because idolatry provokes Hashem's wrath. So based on this verse we can now understand that perhaps what's really being said to us this is what the (laughs) Sifzich HaChemim suggest Haman epitomized idolatry He worshiped himself and he forced people to bow down to him because he was wearing idolatrous clothes you know the Megillah's whole story is about the people who had to bow why? It was an act of idolatrous subservience. Haman made himself into the representation of that deity, or of those deities, but it was on his person. He wore the robes. You bowed to the idol that he was wearing. So Haman was a major promoter of idolatry. The Hamas HaMelech Now that the promoter of idolatry has been demoted, in fact, is dead, Hashem's wrath abates. You know, Haman forced everybody to bow to him, including many, many Jews. There was only one Jew who didn't bow to him, his name is Mordechai. So why did God allow Haman to be Haman? This is part of the tragedy. We, the Jewish people, we didn't do our part. We almost aided and abetted the rise of a Haman. Now that Haman is gone, Hamas It's more than just the victory of the physical lives of the Jewish people. It represents a victory of monotheism, a victory of Hashem's presence. And why was Achashverosh so angry if, after all, He was involved in the plot from the very beginning. Well, this gives us a sense that Esther managed to really fully rotate the situation. He now actually believed with righteous indignation that he had the right to be angry. How could he do this? We heard of Ahasuerus' fury and now his fury was settled. This is really, on a, if you will, an eschatological level. Like this is this is this is like this this big big picture vision of a spiritual metamorphosis and transformation. But the Gemara says there's also a possible, very practical element to all of this. Ma'amrila, others maintain, Achashverosh now was calmed, his anger abated. Achash Esther. He was angry. He said, this Haman guy, he tried to kill my wife. He said, this Haman guy, he killed my first wife. And you're going to ask me one second. He, he, it says that He calmed down. His anger abated. Oh yeah, but he never forgot. And so he personalized this. And that's part of the miracle. Ahasuerus suddenly personalized Esther's desire. Her crusade, if you will, became his crusade. Her acts of saving the Jewish people became his acts. He self-identified with what Esther represented. He said, yes, Haman was a bad man. He killed my first wife. He tried to kill you, Esther. And so in the end, Esther does worse than what Vashti did, if you will. Undermines the prime minister totally changes the direction of his government and he's happy his, wraith, his wrath abates the debba once said something so extraordinary about this conclusion it was the same for bringing first purim of my life purim 1971 the hebba says you could ask of what relevance is this I mean, the Gemara clearly makes a lot of head of it. The Gemara wants to emphasize. Like, look, Hamas Hamelach Two chavs, one chav. What relevance is it? What does it even have to do with the story? Achashveresh is angry at Haman. Chavonah helps. In the end, Hamas What relevance? What does that have to do with the story of Purim? The Rebbe said an amazing thing. The message for us is that we, the Jewish people, want peace. And when we prevail, when we are victorious, when our cause emerges triumphant, it's good for everybody. It's not just good for the Jewish people. It's good for everybody. We want peace. And when we are able to emerge triumphant from our enemies, wrath abates the world becomes a more peaceful place, not only for us, even amongst the nations of the world. And this is what will happen when Mashiach comes. It's not just going to be a good day for the Jews. Mashiach is not just coming to save the Jewish nation. Mashiach is coming to transform the whole world, to make it a godly and goodly place for all of humanity because the Megillah's deeper message to us is that when we experience deliverance and Hashem's miracles naturally it's naturally good for everybody thanks so much for joining may Hashem help us that we should merit to see miraculous deliverance naturally and that naturally it should be good for everybody in the way that Abba spoke and not put in tafshlah aleph, we should be That the Geula, the Yeshua, that the salvation ayudehiach with many miracles should unfold speedily, and in our days, bimhera will be Amenu Amen. Thank you so much for joining. Again, I'm requesting for each of you, please, I'd love to hear your feedback. Please like, please share. And most importantly, please get your family, friends, or relatives to subscribe. YouTube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Have a beautiful evening. Kol Tov.